If you uh, have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew 21 this morning. Matthew 21, first book in the New Testament, this morning here on Palm Sunday. And as you're uh, turning there, I want to throw a picture up on the screen of someone that probably most of you uh, have seen pictures of before, uh, Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth. So in a couple days, a week and a half or so on April 21st, Queen Elizabeth is going to celebrate her 96th birthday and all that, in, that entails. And there's going to be, I'm sure, just great festivities and just great celebration over on the other side of the Atlantic. And Queen Elizabeth, right, just this iconic figure in, you know, not only in world history, but just especially over the recent kind of, you know, past few decades in particular. I know many of you I've, I've talked with, you know, were Americans at heart July 4th, but we still watch The Crown and still have this kind of fascination with kind of the British monarchy and all that. But to kind of to that point, there's, I think, something within us as human beings that is drawn to this sort of, I don't know, celebration idea of kind of the monarchy over in, in kind of the British side of the world over there. And I think that's just kind of just part of like human nature. This idea, this fascination with royalty and princes and princesses and all of the kind of, I don't know, fan lore, if you will, that goes along with that. Because I think, think about it as like even little kids, right? You know, the idea of like Disney princes and princesses, again, this kind of expectation and desire to be a part of this sort of larger story and this longing for kind of a hero or a king or a queen to come kind of save and to rescue and kind of bring sort of some sort of semblance of peace and prosperity to kind of people or whatnot. Think about like the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan, right? This kind of kingly figure that represents, you know, God's work in the world and the benevolence of a good king. Or even Tolkien's Return of the King and that longing for a king to come back. Well, here on Palm Sunday, one of the things that we're going to be talking about is that famous and probably familiar passage of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on that Sunday morning a week before, a week or so before he's going to be crucified. And when we think about in our time, this idea of like anticipation for a king, that the hype that often goes with it, or the anticipation for a queen, and then the hype that often goes with that. There's something very similar happening here on Palm Sunday in our text in Matthew 21. You know, C.S. Lewis, I just mentioned a moment ago, kind of famously wrote about that at the heart of every human being is this desire to be a monarchist. And what he was talking about there is that at the heart of every human being, there's this desire and longing for a true king to come, a true king to come and rescue and to save and to enter into the pain and the brokenness and to go that extra mile to bring about some sort of rescue. But here's the kind of the thing as we think about Palm Sunday in particular. In Matthew 21, there is all this expectation and fan lore and kind of surprise and celebration for Jesus to ride in into Jerusalem. There's all of this hype and kind of momentum being built up. But as we see it in the text this morning, as Jesus enters in and rides in, as we'll talk about, lowly on a donkey, all of sort of the expectations that perhaps people in the first century have around this coming king, Jesus kind of subverts them with twists and turns. And he's not exactly the kind of king that perhaps everyone was expecting 2,000 years ago. So with that all in the back of our heads, let's dive into the text. Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, to you, you shall say, These aren't the donkeys you're looking for. No, some of you got that. There you go. Right? The holy people that know Star Wars. The Lord needs them. 
and he will send them once. Which is, I say that kind of jokingly, but I always kind of picture that. Like, like what's going on here, right? Like, he sends the disciples into the, into, the, into the city to get these donkeys. And it's just like, you know, if anyone asks, like, why you're kind of stealing donkeys on the side here, as we enter into Holy Week, just say, you know, the Lord has need of them. As if that person is supposed to know what's happening. But kind of think about this for a moment. What exactly is going on here? Jesus if you have been kind of tracking with his life and ministry throughout kind of all four of the Gospels in particular, this is kind of the crux, the moment that everything's been pointed towards. In Luke's account, there's a moment in Luke chapter 9 where the Luke, the Gospel writer, says that Jesus sets his face, in some translations say, like flint towards Jerusalem. That Jesus is on a mission to Jerusalem. And along that journey, along that way, Jesus is constantly describing and talking about the kind of week that he is going to have in Jerusalem. That he's going to be handed over to the chief priests and the leaders of the city, the leaders of the, the, the Jewish movement. And that he was going to be betrayed and crucified. And at one point, even in Matthew's gospel, as Jesus is talking about this, that the Son of Man is going to be crucified and betrayed, there's a point in Matthew 16 in particular where Peter's like, no way. No, 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 we're on a mission here. You're supposed to kind of, you know, kind of set Rome aside. There's no way you're going to be crucified, Jesus. And Jesus responds back, get behind me, Satan. No one's expecting this sort of kind of kingly action to take place. But as Jesus kind of continues on that journey, even the chapter right before this in Matthew 20, there's a story where the disciples, they're still not getting it. They have all this expectation as to the kind of king Jesus is going to be. And read that story of James and John. It's actually through his, their mom's request. They come to Jesus and, and the mom comes to Jesus of James. And, the mom comes to Jesus of James and John and says, well, will you grant my sons to sit on your right hand and left hand? Kind of this vying for power. And Jesus is like, you guys don't get it yet. The Son of Man came to seek and save. Well, the Son of Man came not to serve but to be served. That The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. To willingly hand himself over. So the point being is that as you've been kind of tracking with Jesus in his ministry, there's all this momentum, all this sort of direction being pointed towards Jerusalem in this final week. And it's hard for the disciples to track with all of the expectation and the hype and the momentum that's building with Jesus. Because yes, he's gaining popularity. He's gaining influence. But at almost at every turn, Jesus will say things like, shh, don't tell people about, about don't, go, don't, don't, don't go keep spreading the message yet. No, stay quiet. Or you don't understand, disciples, that I'm going to actually give my life. I'm going to suffer and die and get crucified. The point being is that Jesus is extremely intentional with everything he says and everything he does. So I think as we read this portion of the text in Matthew 21, it's not as if Jesus is like some random guy going, you know, taking people's donkeys. There's intentionality behind what Jesus is doing here. That perhaps, as we've kind of seen before in the Gospels, that Jesus has visited these villages before. He's made these arrangements. He's prepared for what's going to happen this coming week. And he's not haphazard about it. But then, verse 4, the text reads on, Matthew writes, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to daughter Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. Now, we need to pause right here. Again, Palm Sunday, a text like this, Matthew 21, it's in all four gospels. This story is one of those stories that can be really familiar for many of us. And the image and the idea of kind of Jesus riding in on a donkey, it's one of those kind of pictures that we have, especially if you've kind of grown up in the church. But we've got to pause and really consider what are we actually being told and why are we being told this? 
And what is the significance of Jesus 2,000 years ago riding into Jerusalem on a donkey? Because this is really key and really crucial. And I want to kind of point to two primary things here. And they actually both start with P, just for kind of sake of memory here. The first P is this, peace. And what I mean by this is that as Jesus is riding in on a donkey, he's not riding in on contrast via like a war horse or this massive stallion. Because often as leaders would come into a city, especially political or military leaders, come into a city, what they would have is all of the fanfare, all of kind of what we might consider like a motorcade, so to speak, but with horses and chariots, riding in into a city on a massive war stallion, being like, I am the king. I am the one who's come to conquer. I am the one who's going to come and deliver. But Jesus does not do that. Jesus does not come in on a war horse. He comes in on a donkey. Kind of this symbolic imagery of him bringing peace, shalom, wholeness to the people. This is exactly, if we were to go back to Zechariah chapter 9, which is what Matthew just quoted from, we would read about in Zechariah 9 that this coming prophecy of this coming king would come riding in lowly on a donkey. Why? To bring about peace. To bring about shalom. To bring about that wholeness that God's people ultimately desire. That Jesus is not coming in to wage war against Rome or to even wage war against the Jewish leaders that are corrupting the whole system of his day. But instead, Jesus is coming lowly, humbly, not on a war horse, but on a, this donkey, kind of symbolizing the peace that he's come to bring. Now with that, and kind of by way of kind of, you know, going together with this idea of peace, this other idea of Pilate. Because we know from other historical sources that at about this exact same time, Pilate, the Roman governor of this area, was more than likely riding into Jerusalem, the very same town Jesus is coming into, but from the opposite side of the city, from the western side. Because what we're approaching now through Holy Week is that famous, very important Jewish kind of festival and celebration of Passover. And so Passover, this moment where thousands upon thousands of people would flood into Jerusalem to celebrate and to honor God's work in the Exodus, to celebrate God's kind of saving, redemptive work throughout their history. And so people from all over the known world are traveling, making their way into Jerusalem. And you think Car Week is bad around here. Jerusalem, during Passover week, the population would just swell. The crowds would grow. And so at the same time, Pilate, kind of as kind of a habit of his, would come into Jerusalem, especially during kind of these massive kind of festivals and celebrations. Because there is always this sort of fear in the back of Pilate's mind that there would be some sort of revolt, some sort of pushback against kind of the Roman occupation. And it would make sense, right? As the crowds would swell, more people are there in the city. They're celebrating God's victory over the Egyptians, God's redemption over the Egyptians. And many first century Jews believe that Rome was the new Egypt in town. And so it only makes sense as Pilate comes in not on a donkey. Pilate comes in with his battalion, his war horses, really to bring his sort of fake peace, if you will, to rule with domination and with fear and to set up kind of guards around the outer parts of the temple that if anyone would kind of mess up or do anything wrong, there'd be archers ready to pin someone down at a moment's notice. So here comes Jesus riding in a donkey, lowly, gentle, humbly on a donkey to bring peace, the exact opposite of what Pilate and the Roman armies would seek to bring. But again, I just kind of picture this, this idea of Jesus riding on a donkey. It's one of those images that if it becomes so familiar, we, we lose sort of the gravitas. We lose sort of the, the importance of what we're being told here about this Jesus, about this king. 
Because just like in our day today, we have all this expectation around what a king and a ruler and a deliverer should be like. So too did first century Jewish people and the first century audience of Jesus' today have expectations as well. And Jesus is subverting, beginning subtly with these expectations. I'm coming in lowly, gently, humbly on a donkey. This is not what a kind of massive, powerful ruler would ride. Jesus is riding on essentially what a hobbit would ride on into Jerusalem. And here he comes, Jesus, lowly and humble. And then verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Again, thinking about this, here comes the, the Jesus entering into Jerusalem. It's that classic scene again, while we call it Palm Sunday, taking the tree branches, taking the palm branches. John's gospel gives us that kind of extra detail there. Laying them kind of on, on the road as Jesus enters in. Kind of the red carpet, so to speak, is being rolled out. And here comes Jesus, and there's crowds of people praising Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, meaning, Lord, save. Lord, save us now, we pray. This cry from Psalm 118 echoing all the way back centuries ago for God's people crying out, praying, God, save us now. And again, perhaps the expectation for many people in the crowd was that they, they would be saved from the occupation of the Roman military that was coming into town at the same time. Lord, save us. This is the moment. We've seen the momentum. We've seen the miracles. We've seen the teaching of Jesus for these many years here in the area. This has to be the moment. All of the expectation, all of the momentum coming in. And what, is the, what happens next? And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now it's really important to point out a couple things here. One in, one in particular. Notice as I was reading those previous verses that the, the language of the crowds keeps popping up. The crowds are the ones shouting Hosanna to the son of David. The crowds are the ones who just said, this is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth to Galilee. And many people will point out, especially from this text, as you kind of go in throughout Holy Week. And obviously, even beforehand too, the crowds, yes, of course, Jesus had disciples. He had these close followers. But oftentimes, a contrast is made between the disciples, those that are really intentionally following Jesus, and the crowds who are there present. But it's kind of ambiguous. Are they really following Jesus? Are they really seeking him? Are they really kind of giving their life to him? Because this is what ends up happening. Just a few days later, Matthew uses the exact same language. The crowds are gathered together again, and up in front of them is Pilate, the man I just mentioned. And Pilate had this custom that, because of what was happening, that he would release one prisoner to the crowds. And that prisoner was Barabbas, or Barabbas. His name means son of the father. Bar, son of Abba, father, son of the father. So there's one son of the father being presented. Jesus, the true son of the father, being presented. Who should I release, Pilate says. And what do the crowd say? Barabbas, Barabbas, we want him instead. The point being is this. 
The crowds that here on Palm Sunday are praising and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David, are more than likely the exact same people, or at least a group of them, that would then say just a few days later, no, crucify this Son of David and give us this Son of Barabbas, Barabbas himself. The point being is this, the crowds don't become this kind of paradigm for what it means to truly follow Jesus. The crowds seem to just kind of go with the flow, go with kind of what the momentum, what the popularity, what the overall kind of zeitgeist of the day is actually happening, what's actually being talked about. And so we have to be careful, we have to kind of pay attention and slow down and ask ourselves, and even imagine ourselves in the story. Imagine ourselves hearing about Jesus and hearing all of these stories and being physically there perhaps for a healing or a teaching or two. And you're not totally sure where you land with this Jesus. But you're there in the crowds and you're there and you're, you're feeling the momentum, you're hearing and feeling the energy that's taking place on this Palm Sunday. How will you respond to this Jesus? Like deeply respond to him. Not just with the surface level Hosanna on one day and then crucify him a few days later. But how will you genuinely respond in the moment to this Jesus? But notice, as the story continues, Jesus, he comes on a donkey, gentle and humble, lowly. But look at what the very next thing Jesus does as he enters into the city. This is gentle Jesus. And Jesus entered the temple and look at what he does. He drives out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And you have made it, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now, when I think of Jesus like gentle and humble and lowly on a donkey, my first image is not of Jesus coming into some institution and start throwing tables over left and right. That's not like the first thing I picture. But here is the key. Here is the, here's like the really crucial idea. When Jesus is being described as gentle, lowly, humble, riding in a donkey, kind of the very essence of that is that those who stand in the way of the poor and the powerless, Jesus, as this gentle, lowly, humble king, flips over tables. It's a demonstration of his love. It's a demonstration of his gentleness to oppose those acts of injustice that are plaguing people in society. It's because Jesus is gentle. It's because Jesus is humble that he stands opposed to the injustice that's happening in this day. Let me get a little more specific here. Notice in the text that we're told that there's people kind of being sold, these pigeons and these doves, these kind of smallish sort of animals. And this is a reference Back to the Torah, back to the Old Testament. Again, two more Ps for you. The first one is this, the poor in particular. Because again, at this time, you're coming into the temple, it's Passover. You're invited to celebrate, make your sacrifices, or offer your sacrifices. And for those who were more on kind of the, the poorer side, they'd be given an option to not have to bring like this massive kind of cattle or this massive animal, but to perhaps purchase a smaller animal, like a pigeon or a turtle dove. This is exactly what we read, by the way, with Jesus and his family in the Christmas story, or the days following the Christmas story, that Jesus' family was likely very poor, and so they had to kind of go this route. And this provision was made within the Old Testament Torah itself for that those who were poor would not have to bring sort of this massive animal, but could rather purchase this smaller animal. 
instead. But what's happening here is that the poor are being taken advantage of in the temple by the religious leaders. Overpriced, overcharged. And so now, even the poor do not have access, do not have the privilege and the right to enter in to worship. And Jesus is like, this is, this is ludicrous. This is not what's supposed to happen. Jesus then says, you've made this. My house, the house, the temple of God. A den of thieves, a den of robbers. Jesus in that moment is quoting from Jeremiah 7. In Jeremiah 7, it's this really haunting passage. Because God is ticked at Israel. Like, really mad at Israel. Because Israel's leaders in particular are saying, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. We worship Yahweh here. We have our sermons and our songs and we do all these really good things in the name of Yahweh. But there's neglect for the outcast. There's neglect for the poor. There's bribery. There's cheating. There's all of this corruption that's happening within the the Israel's leaders of the day in Jeremiah 7. And Jesus quotes from Jeremiah 7 and says, you current moment, first century religious leaders, you are being exactly like those Jeremiah 7 leaders that God was totally opposed against thousands, hundreds of years ago. Jesus also says, is not my house or is not this house to be a house of prayer? And that's a separate quote from Isaiah 56. And what Jesus is doing here, it's like a, a Bible smoothie here, kind of blending some text together. So on one hand, you have Jeremiah 7 on one hand, then Isaiah 56 on the other hand. And he kind of merges these two ideas together. What's Isaiah 56 about? Isaiah 56 is this beautiful poem that the prophet writes about God's sort of generous inclusion of the foreigner, of the outcasts, of those who are on the margins. And Isaiah foresees and foretells of a day in Isaiah 56 when those who were on the outside are now being brought in to this house of prayer. And Jesus is saying, basically, have you not read the prophets? Have you not read the Hebrew scriptures? Isaiah is is speaking of what is happening right now. I am including bringing in the blind and the lame. I'm bringing in the outcasts and the poor so that my house can be a house of prayer. Sometimes we think of my house will be a house of prayer, and we think, okay, that's just about having a prayer meeting. That's fine. That's part of it. But in context, Isaiah 56 is about the prayers of all different kinds of people, all different ethnic backgrounds, all different socioeconomic backgrounds, coming together to pray and to worship the one true God. It's about the radical inclusiveness of God. And what Jesus is lamenting, what Jesus, gentle, lowly, humble, is opposing, is all of this religious pretext. Yeah, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. We've got it all figured out. We have all of this kind of nailed down. But there's actual neglect for real hurting people. In Jesus, again, because he is gentle, because he is humble and lowly, he so identifies with the humble and lowly that he stands opposed to anyone or anything that would get in the way of seeing all kinds of people to come to pray and to worship the one true God. Now, one more kind of like fun little thing here. Notice in the text, we're told that Jesus healed the blind and the lame in those verses. And again, that might be, oh yeah, that's like what Jesus does. That's like a very Jesus-y thing to do, right? I just kind of expect that from Jesus at this point. We're Matthew 21, like, you know, we're like down the home stretch. Jesus healed a lot of blind people throughout the gospel. Now, that's true, 
And I, you know, on a, on a very basic level, that's why I think Matthew included this, because it's a real historical thing that happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus healed the blind and the lame. But one other kind of like, let me just put it like this, like a little Easter egg for you in this, is that as I was kind of thinking about this and reading more about this, I was actually thinking about some of the teachings we're going to do in Samuel, kind of later on in, in, over the summer. And when David himself, in 2 Samuel 5, rides into Jerusalem, after he is anointed officially to become king, after Saul, his predecessor, has officially died. In 2 Samuel 5, we read that David rides into Jerusalem, the new king. Finally, David's time has come. And what you read in 2 Samuel 5 is that there is this kind of dark spot, blemish on David's character. Because David wants nothing to do with the blind and the lame. David essentially says they're not welcome in the house of God. And you're like, well, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't seem like a man after God's own heart. That doesn't fit with the picture of like David writing poetry to God, psalms to God, songs to God. Well, again, it's just kind of this real honest portrait of these biblical quote-unquote heroes that have a ton of flaws. That think all of their power is about them and themselves. But what we have here in Matthew 21 is Jesus entering into Jerusalem. Remember, Hosanna to the what? Son of David. The true son of David. Jesus truly showing what it looks like to be a king of compassion. Reversing the injustice that even David himself brought about in his own day. That Jesus is not afraid to stand opposed even to the heroes of, of his own people's history. And to stand opposed to even the injustice that David would have brought about in his day when he rode into Jerusalem himself hundreds of years before. But look at this, verse 15. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. There's that language again. They were indignant, and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And I love this about Jesus. This isn't the only time Jesus has this kind of retort back. Jesus says to them being the religious leaders, the ones that know their Bibles more than anyone else, have you not read have you not read your Bible? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, a quote from Psalm chapter 8, you have prepared praise. Now this is, this is so fun. I love this about Jesus. Have you not read the scriptures? Have you not read the text? Psalm 8, what are we talking about here? Psalm 8 is this beautiful poem that starts with, How majestic is your name, O Lord? It's this poem that's praising, the first part of it at least, praising the magnificence of who God is. And in the very next kind of lines after that, the psalmist writes, Psalm chapter 8, that out of nursing babes and infants, that, that, that majestic Lord, that majestic God of the universe is praised by some of the most lowly creatures, little babies. That this God welcomes praise from the lowest as far as like just infancy, just starting out in life. That the, the littlest human beings have the privilege of offering praise, of, of valid, real praise to this majestic God. And Jesus says, have you not read Psalm chapter 8? Psalm chapter 8 would have been this crucial, beautiful, kind of core poem in the Psalter. Because it goes on to describe how magnificent even human beings are. What is man that you have made him just a little bit lower than the angels? That you've crowned these humans with glory and honor. And here the religious leaders are not recognizing that even these little ones that are praising Hosanna the son of David, 
They're not recognizing the glory and honor that God has given even these little ones. And Jesus, again, stands opposed to all that would come against him and against those that would be on the margins. Have you not read your Bible? Have you not read the text? It's right there in the scriptures that you so cherish. It's right there in all the practices that you think are so good and so right. This is the temple. This is the temple. We do all the prayer. We do all the songs. We do all the sermons. But you're missing the point, Jesus says. And you're missing the point of who I am. That I'm not this kind of warrior going to come in and kick Rome's butt. No, I am this gentle, lowly, humble king that stands opposed to anything and anyone that would seek to prohibit the gentle and the humble and the lowly from coming close to me. As we think about this, kind of even more deeply for our everyday life. You know, Palm Sunday, it's this beautiful moment in the church calendar, and I was thinking about this this morning. But especially kind of in the American West, it's not often that we can say that virtually almost every single Christian church right now this morning is teaching from probably one of four texts from the Palm Sunday text. And just kind of the unity that the the whole body of Christ is having this morning, talking about Palm Sunday and Jesus' quote-unquote triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's a beautiful thing to think about, that brothers and sisters from all across the world are talking about either Matthew 21 or Luke's account or Mark's account, wherever it might be in the four Gospels. But what does a text like this, that is so familiar to many of us, how does a familiar text speak a fresh word into our lives today? Because this is the danger, oftentimes, with a text like this. The familiar kind of gets pushed to the side, and we don't allow the the Holy Spirit to speak a fresh word into our lives. Because, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. I even felt this a little bit as I was preparing for this message. There was a part of me that was like, can I just teach something else? Because like we've, how many Palm Sunday messages have people heard before? Like I want to kind of change it up a bit and it's kind of this temptation like, there's always this temptation for I think pastors to get super creative in a bad way around Easter and Christmas. Right? Because like I got to like reinvent the wheel and like come up with something fresh and kind of new or whatever. But, but hear me out on this. What if it's through the familiar that God wants to speak a fresh word to us today? What if it's through this familiar passage that I'm sure for many of you have heard or read or studied or heard sermons on this passage dozens if not hundreds of times before in your life? Are you open to the Spirit of God speaking a fresh word to you at the beginning of this Holy Week? Because if God can speak through burning bushes and dreams and visions, he can certainly speak through this text, Matthew 21, to us this morning. Now, as I was praying and thinking about this, I kept coming back to verse 4 in particular. That line from Zechariah that Matthew quotes, where Jesus comes in and Matthew writes that this is to fulfill prophecy. And that opening line in verse 4 where Matthew slash Zechariah write, Behold, behold, your king is coming to you. And to really, I was invited this week, I think, by the Spirit to slow down and and kind of reflect upon just those few words there. Behold. 
Look, pay attention. Behold. Don't just skim past. Don't just, oh yeah, read quickly through the story. Don't just let Holy Week be another week on your calendar. No, behold. Behold, slow down. This, yes, this, this, yes, this means slow down. This means pay attention. Soren Kierkegaard, hundreds of years ago said, or a couple hundred years ago, said this, the result of busyness is that an individual is very seldom permitted to form a heart. And if we're really going to be able to behold Jesus this Holy Week, to slow down, to see him for who he truly is. I just can't help but wonder if it requires us to not just kind of go through the motions, to not just say yes to all the different things that might be offered, but to really behold and slow down. Sometimes I think about this line often, at least over the past few weeks. Uh, Mike and Rachel on our worship team got me kind of into listening to the Lord of the Rings on Spotify, and so the whole series of Lord of the Rings, the books, are on Spotify with like the soundtrack from the movies playing in the background with different voices, and it's awesome. So like on my days off, I have Addie, and I go for a walk, and I just listen to Lord of the Rings for a couple hours, and it's, it's fabulous. But there's one moment early in the book, the great theologian Bilbo Baggins says this, <laughs> that I, <laughs> I feel like my life is like butter scraped over too much bread. I feel like my life is like butter scraped over too much bread. What a haunting image. I, I resonate with that. And can we really be the kinds of people that behold the King of Kings coming to us this Holy Week if our lives are so spread thin? Just constantly moving on to thing after thing after thing after thing and not having these pockets, whether it's 30 seconds or 30 minutes or whatever the case might be, to intentionally behold the person of Jesus. Now, we're still a little bit up at 30,000 feet here, I get that. But right now, I just want you to feel that invitation. Feel that invitation to behold Jesus this week. Yeah, practically, what, the, what does that look like? What does that mean? What does that, you know go off to some monastery for hours, not necessarily, but pockets of time intentionally geared and directed to beholding the beauty of Jesus, gentle and lowly this week. For me, one of the things I've tried to intentionally incorporate is I came across this like really sweet little, this is like gonna sound really funny for all my like scripture before phone kind of mantra stuff that I keep saying all the time, but I actually found this app on my phone. <laughs> And so the irony is like thick right now. I get it. And so actually this, this past week and a half or so, I've actually been using my phone first thing in the morning for this app called Lectio 365. And what it has is every morning seven or eight minutes of like really cool like British people with accents that make it like a million times better walking through a short passage of scripture in guided prayer and reflection. Seven or eight minutes and it's just this beautiful, still pocket of time where I can intentionally behold the beauty of Jesus. I'm not asked to do anything. I'm not even really asked to say anything. I mean, you could, I guess, verbalize it's on your phone or whatever. You could do that. But it's just an invitation to listen 
and it pauses at, at key moments, and it's just you're reflecting. You're there. You're, you're as present as you possibly can be in that moment. And so this week, behold, what might that look like for you? With all of the familiarity with Palm Sunday, with all of the familiarity of Easter and Good Friday and all these stories that, again, many of us know really well, are we open to slowing down to behold the beauty and the freshness of Jesus this week? Another passage that keeps coming to mind is Psalm 46. Psalm 46 at the very end has that semi-famous line, be still and know that I am God. Right, and we love that. Be still and know that I am God. But what we forget about that is the, basically the, the, the totality of Psalm 46 is all about how like the nations are raging, the mountains are quaking, there's all this chaos in the world, everything's kind of up in an upheaval. And the, last, the second to last line is be still and know that I am God. The invitation of the psalmist is like in the midst of the mountains quaking, of the nations raging, of all of the chaos in the world, in the midst of all that, do not just escape that, but be still present to God who is already present to you in the midst of all of that. Be still and know that I am God. Behold, one thing I ask, David says, one thing I seek, that I may gaze or behold the beauty of the Lord and dwell in the temple, to dwell in his presence all the days of my life. And that longing and that desire Man, I want that kindled in my life. And this is is the simple prayer of spirit. Kindle that desire. Kindle that desire within me, within us as a church. That one thing I ask is that we would behold the beauty and the goodness of God. But the line keeps going in verse 4, Matthew 21. Behold, your, your. And that word your just really stood out this week. And asking myself that question, is Jesus really my king? It's personal. Is Jesus really your king? I don't mean that necessarily in like an evangelistic sort of sense, although that can apply for sure. Like, is Jesus your king? Like, have you ever considered that as like a real crucial turning point in your life? But for many of us in this room who declare and identify and say, yes, I am a follower of Jesus, that question is still a legitimate question. Is Jesus your king? Is Jesus the one who is your ruler and authority over your life? Not just a part of your life, not just this area, but that key area that you really don't want him to touch. Now, you really don't want him to necessarily get involved all that much. There's kind of an old ancient story, I don't know if it's completely true, but it's often told in kind of church history books that during the Crusades, when people would get baptized, warriors, soldiers in particular, one of kind of the, the stories that would be told is that sometimes the soldiers would get baptized. As they're kind of in the name of God going out and killing innocent people. Is that they would get baptized but leave their swords above the water. As if to say like, God you can have all of my life except for this part. I'm going to leave that up out of the water. But in a week from today when we baptize about seven or eight people. When we get to see and witness that. Their whole body going in the water. Why? Because all of their life belongs to Jesus. What is my one hope in life and death? My one hope is that I belong to my faithful Lord and Savior. And I belong to him. All of me belongs to him. And asking yourself that question, is Jesus your, your king? 
and king. Think about that word, king. Not just a king who's a warrior who has all this kind of hype and popularity, but king, gentle and lowly on a donkey. And asking yourself, this is the king who comes, who's not beyond or above riding on a colt on a donkey, but is a, a king who comes lowly and humble to us. And a king, and that word coming, is in the present tense. And think about that this morning. Yes, Jesus, historically, real, to the day, Palm Sunday, came into Jerusalem. And that text applied 110% for sure in that moment. Your king is coming, Matthew writes, quoting Zechariah chapter 9. But today, this morning, I can't help but wonder, is Jesus is coming to you and to me today. Your king is coming to you. Into that moment, into that perhaps anxiety or worry or that burden that you carry with you into this room, that Jesus is coming to you there. That Jesus comes alongside you and to you and with you with that tenderness and that gentleness and those words of compassion and comfort to say, I am coming to you in your brokenness. And this journey of Jesus entering in Jerusalem does not end at the city gates, but ends on Good Friday on a cross. The extent to which the king is coming ends with him dying on a cross. And it doesn't even end there. Let me correct myself. It ends with him coming up out of the grave three days later. And so that this king who is coming to you and to me this Palm Sunday, will we take the time this week to behold him in all of his beauty, in all of his power? Will we take the time to slow down and not just let Holy Week be another week on the calendar? But that we would behold, slow down, and say yes to the invitation of Jesus coming to you and me. I want to invite the worship team to come up and as we spend a few minutes slowing down and together as a family, as the church, I guess one thing that keeps coming up in my heart and my mind is that we would become the kinds of people, continue to become the kinds of people that would say yes to the invitation of Jesus. This is not just a one-time thing that you did, you know, years ago, perhaps. But your king is coming to you and to me today. Your king does not stand afar off and aloof and distant. But perhaps the pain or the worry or even the joy that you bring into this room. Allow Jesus over these next few moments as we worship to come to you deeply to those moments, to those worries and those anxieties. So let me just pause and allow just for each of us right now. What is that one area or that one thing or idea or hope or plan? That one person, whatever it might be. And to receive these words, your king is coming to you there. Behold. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would 
open our eyes and soften our hearts. God, that you would help us as you are to humbly come before you. God, you remove any sense of pride or just self-sufficiency that we might carry and we would just surrender and lay that down before you. You, Jesus, humble and gentle, want to come to us. And so we pray by the power of your spirit, God, you would make that a reality for each and every one of us. God, would you break down those lies and those barriers to us receiving your goodness and your presence this morning. And so Jesus, as we behold you and your glory, would you help us to rest in your, in your love and in your presence today? Help us to receive you as the gift that you truly are. So with open hands, we just cry out, Jesus, we need more of you. Come into those broken places in our lives. Come into those broken relationships. Come into those dreams and those plans. Behold, your king is coming to you. We love you. We pray these things in your name.